0: Welcome to RUF. My name is John. I'm the campus pastor for for RUF here at UVM. Whether you've been in this community for a long time or you're brand new, my hope is that you feel welcome here, uh, that you feel known, um, or have the opportunity to be known and to be loved. Uh, We want this Wednesday Night Fellowship to be a time and a place where you can kick back and you can relax, you can enjoy some of the best pizza uh, that Burlington has to offer, uh, and to do that with friends, some new, some old. We want you to fall more in love with this place, um, UVM, Burlington. We want you to fall more in love with the people in this room. And we also want you to fall more in love with Jesus. Um, Though we can't see him right now, we believe that he's here, that he's present. Um, He's present any time we open up his word and we have it preached. He's present any time his people gather. We sing songs out loud because we believe that he can hear us. Uh, And we read his word out loud because we believe he has something to say to us. Um, All semester long, we've been looking at the life of Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of Luke. We saw at the beginning of this book that it's written by the likes of us for the likes of us, uh, so that we might have certainty about the things that we've heard concerning Jesus. At the center of the the story that Luke tells is a man named Jesus, uh, and it's it's a story about his mission to save the world. Last week we saw Jesus step into a synagogue. He asks for the Isaiah scroll. He turns to Isaiah 61 and he reads out loud, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus puts the scroll down. He drops the mic as he were. And he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In so many words, Jesus is saying, I'm the one that you have been waiting for. I alone am the solution to your problems. And not just your problems, but the world's. It's a mighty big claim. You wouldn't be at fault for saying, prove it. And that's what Jesus is going to do tonight. And it's what he's going to do in the weeks to follow. He's going to back up that claim that he just made. We're going to look at Luke 5, 17 to 26 tonight. there are Bibles over here. I'm going to be reading from one tonight, but these are a gift to you. So is this Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a great resource. This might take you months to read. You could read the Jesus Storybook Bible on a weekend, and it gives you a great overview of what the Bible has to say. So please, take one home with you if you don't have one already. We're also going to project it up here. You can follow along on your phone, whatever. But here's Luke 5:17 to 26. Now, one of those days, as he was teaching, as Jesus was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee, in Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd. They went up on the roof, and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus." He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is God's word, not just my own. So I'm going to pray that he would help us to understand it. Father, thanks for bringing us together, uh, for gathering us around your food. Gatherings around your word, I pray that you would speak to us tonight. You'd speak loud and clear, you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that is soft, um, ready to receive and believe what you want to say to us tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, last week, um, I was ha- having a one on one with Rainy Brungo um, over the summer. Rainy and Sabrina and another roommate of theirs uh, took a trip to Switzerland. The trip sounds amazing. You should talk to Rainy about it. As we were talking, she pulled out her iPhone and she said, you've got to see these pictures of Zermatt. So she pulled out her iPhone and she laid it before me. And as I was scrolling through um, these pictures of Zermatt, I saw after scene, after scene, after scene, the Matterhorn, which is one of the world's most beautiful mountains. It's right there, sort of... Um, at the base, well, Zermatt's right there at the base of the Matterhorn, and it was sticking out in every picture for just I don't know, calling for our attention and our admiration. Well, verse twenty-four uh, in our passage tonight is sort of like the Matterhorn of our passage. It is the climax. It is the high point of the passage that we've read. Everything before verse twenty-four is building up to it and anticipates it, and everything behind it is looking back at that mountain of the verse, in awe and in wonder. So as we keep this verse, verse 24, in our view, we're going to see and we're going to appreciate three things. Jesus is the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. Those are the three points. Jesus is the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. First, Jesus is the Son of Man. This right here, the Son of Man, is the title that Jesus likes to... It's his most favorite title for himself. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man 25 times in the Gospel of Luke. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, in Luke 19. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise, that's Luke 24. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Luke 5, 24, the passage we've just read. Again and again and again, on and on and on, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. But what does that title or that phrase mean? Well, like so many of these clues that are dropped in the New Testament, right, the answer to that question can be found in an Old Testament book, a book called Daniel, specifically chapter 7 of that book. Daniel was an Old Testament prophet. He lived in the 6th century B.C., he witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem and he was carried into exile in Babylon where he was a college student not unlike you but in the 7th chapter he describes a dream that he had and he describes it in vivid detail he wakes up from the dream and he writes down what he saw he sees four great beasts and these four great beasts represent four great empires the Babylonian empire the Persian Empire, the Greeks, the Romans. Once upon a time, the Babylonians and the Greeks, well, and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, they were the world's superpowers. But where are the world's superpowers now? Their distant and faded memory. Their glory lies in ruins. Maybe a few marble columns dotting the landscape here and there. Almost like skeleton fingers rising out of the earth, signaling to us, we once were here. All empires rise and fall. Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the British Empire, the American Empire, the empire that will follow after it. They all come and they go. But as Daniel peers into the future... He sees something else. To be more precise, he sees someone else, a king and a kingdom that will not fail, that will not fall. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7 with me. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Into him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What Daniel sees in this night vision is a king and a kingdom breaking into our violent world to bring peace, And it is a peace and a kingdom that will last forever. The Son of Man is a heaven-sent Savior. He comes on clouds, a clear symbol of his divine authority. He comes, though, like a Son of Man, looking like us, resembling us, wearing our jersey, as it were. He's far greater than any Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar Augustus or Donald Trump. Because their lifespans, their political terms are short-lived. Their empires are fragile, but not the son of man's. All peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues will serve and or worship him, and his empire will never fail. His kingdom will last forever. This is who we are introduced for the first time in Daniel chapter 7. And the significance is that this is who Jesus claims to be, 25 times in the Gospel of Luke. I am the Son of Man. This is the first thing that we see as we peer at this Matterhorn of a verse. Luke 5 24. Jesus is the Messianic Son of Man. But it builds to the second point He is the Son of Man who has authority. He is the Son of Man who has authority. Now, the word authority here means power. It means control over. It means permission to act. It's the same word dominion in Daniel chapter 7. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Now, when Jesus says all authority, he means all authority, all power. There's not one square inch over creation that doesn't belong to him, is what he's saying. There's not one rogue molecule he doesn't have control over. Nothing happens on planet Earth, or any other planet for that matter, without his permission. He's personally okayed every birthday and attended every funeral. People, nations, planets, stars, insects, mammals, weather, tides, all things in heaven and on earth are under his dominion, his authority, his control. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, it makes us uncomfortable to hear Jesus talk like this. This is the sort of thing crazy people say. I control the weather. I invented gravity. I okayed your birth. If Jesus is telling the truth, then he's the greatest person you've ever met and will ever meet in your life. But if he's not telling the truth, he's completely off his rocker. He is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs crazy. Right? This is what the Pharisees and the scribes are thinking. They're saying, Who is this guy committing blasphemy, equating himself with God? He's a liar. He's a lunatic. Shut him up. Get him off the stage. If Jesus is a liar, if he's a lunatic, he is not to be followed. Click mute, change the channel. But what if he's not crazy? What if he's not lying? What if he is telling the truth? Well, far from changing the channel, you would need to tune in. You would need to turn it up. And you would need to listen up. You would need to take notes. You would need to drop what you were doing and follow him. You would have to let go of the controller. And more than that, you would need to let go of control. You would need to relinquish it to him. But that, letting go of control, I think freaks you out, maybe freaks me out more than anything else. You're afraid to do that. Jesus says, I am the son of man. I am the king with a capital K. The kings have never been popular in America. The last one we pledged allegiance to was King George III, and we know how that story goes. We declared our independence. Yet even as our national history illustrates, getting rid of one king doesn't mean getting rid of all authority. We simply put someone else in his or her place. In the place of King George, it's President Washington or the U.S. Congress. And spiritually, we do the same thing. If King Jesus isn't going to rule over our lives, we'll put something or someone else in his place. It becomes a game of thrones. If, G- if King Jesus isn't going to occupy the throne, maybe it's going to be your parents, or maybe it's going to be a peer, or maybe, most likely, it's going to be you. We kick Jesus off of the throne, and we slide into his chair, and we become what David Foster Wallace calls lords over our tiny skull-sized kingdoms, t- tiny skull-sized kingdoms. Consider the trade-offs. In the place of his omniscience, we get our limited perspective. Instead of his guidance, we go with our gut. It doesn't matter that less than five years ago you were in high school and living at home with your parents. It doesn't matter that when we all were in high school, this is true of me too, The most important and pressing things in the world were what we were going to do on the weekend, what table we were going to sit at in the cafeteria, and who was dating who. We overlook that fact when we assume authority over our lives. We say, no, I'm good, I got this. I was 18 years old, nineteen years ago. I was a college student at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And something happened to me as I sat in that environment, as I sat in lectures and I read thick books, and all this information was pouring in and all this information was coming out in the forms of book reports and papers and essays, something happened in that environment. I became a know-it-all. I became wise in my own eyes. I was only a couple of years out of high school. I didn't have a college degree. I never worked a serious job in my life. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I got wasted on the weekends. I subsisted on peanut butter and jelly and hard-boiled eggs. But yet I would have you believe at 18, 19, 20 that I had been around the block long enough and enough times to know how life really works on planet Earth. I would have you believe that. I was like a kid who had read a pop-up book about airports and airplanes and thought that that gave me the authority to fly an airplane. That based on my limited experience, I had what it takes to be a professional pilot because I had read a pop-up book about it. That's kind of how I was acting. And that sounds crazy, but here's the deal. If you're not going to submit to any authority but yourself, you're doing the same thing. You're stepping into a cockpit with, I'd say, pretty limited knowledge, pretty limited experience, and saying, move over, Jesus. I'm going to fly this thing. I see you doing this, and I see you freaking out because you're a kid flying an airplane. (laughs) Maybe you're freaking out because there's turbulence, or maybe you're freaking out because you're nosediving. You're trying to fly the plane, and you're not good at it. And here's the proof. As Lord of your life, you get to decide how you're going to spend your days, and you cram it full of activity. You work and you work and you work and you work. You are obsessed with getting good grades. Obsessed with not just meeting, but exceeding your parents' expectations. Improving your worth. And you're miserable. You're miserable. Which is confusing to you because you're also your Lord. So how can you be Lord and miserable at the same time? That doesn't make sense. As lord of your life you think promiscuous sex and drug use is the path to happiness. But once your hangover wears off and your sex buddy goes home, you are as sad and as lonely as ever. As lord of your life, you've determined that you can avoid pain and suffering by detaching, by being non-committal and keeping your options open. But you are finding friendship elusive. And you are feeling isolated and alone. I see it as a campus pastor. And you tell it to me as a friend. You tell this to me when we hang out one on one that you are afraid, that you are sad, that you are anxious, that you do not have it all together that you do not know what you are doing with your life. And you know what? That is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. It is okay for you to admit that you do not have the right, the power, the permission, the wisdom, or the authority to fly this plane. It is exceedingly wise for you to take a backseat and ride in coach And let somebody else, somebody more experienced, fly this plane for you. That person is not me, by the way. And it's not your parents. And it is not your president. It is not your boyfriend. It is not your girlfriend. That person who belongs in the cockpit is Jesus. He wants to be in the cockpit, but not as your co pilot, as your pilot. He wants to be there as your pilot. Jesus is the one who can take control, who can stabilize your wings, who can set your course and propel you into the future. Because he made the universe and because he made you and he knows how it all works together. He has that kind of authority. So when Henry Ford designed the automobile, He made it with a set of instructions. He said, put gas in this thing I call a car, not maple syrup. If you try to run this thing on maple syrup, you're going to ruin the car and you're going to ruin the syrup. Don't do that. That's stupid. Mm -hmm. Now, Henry Ford can say that and he can speak that with authority because he made it. He knows it inside and out. He knows how life, how this thing works well. And Jesus speaks with the same kind of authority when it comes to you and your life. He is the Son of Man, Who has authority. But the third thing I want you to see tonight. Is that he is the son of man who has authority to forgive sins. He's the son of man who has authority to forgive sins. See Jesus has all this power. But what does he do with it? That's an interesting and I think a very important question. He has tremendous power but how does he use it? Well, look at, look at this passage with me. Read the Gospel of Luke. He uses his power to liberate, not to enslave. He uses his power to heal, not to harm. He uses his power to cancel our debts, not to squeeze us dry. I think when this point really clicks, you're going to be able to do what right now feels impossible. When you see that Jesus not only is powerful, but that he uses his power for your good, well then sit on the throne, take control of the wheel, fly my plane. I'm totally fine with that. If I know that you're good and you're powerful, have at it, Jesus. I'll be your sheep. You can be my shepherd. If that's what you do with your power, you use it for my good. And that is what Jesus does again and again and again and again. In the story that we're looking at tonight, Jesus is at his home and he's teaching to a large crowd. The place is packed. People are crowding around Jesus to hear what he has to say. And they're also crowding around because the power of the Lord is on him to heal. All the time. Jesus is preaching good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. And then he's healing lepers of their spots. He's giving sight to the blind. He's helping people to walk on their own two feet again. This is what he does. Then behold, verse 18, I'll see you. Some men are bringing to Jesus a uh, a man on a bed. and He's paralyzed. There's no way that... This man's friends can cut through the crowd. So what do they do? They climb up on the roof, and then they start tearing the shingles and the tiles apart. you just probably like, <laughs> Is that like a, a, a mutant squirrel up there as they're like pulling the, the roof apart? But they pull the roof apart. You can imagine the dust, you know, sort of coming down onto Jesus as they do this. And all of a sudden there's a hole and the sunlight pours through And then there's a couple of faces peering down, you know, into the house. And they lower their friend on a mat before Jesus. Jesus sees the man. He sees their friends. And he knows what they want of him. The man's friends think that what he needs most is the ability to walk. Which is a good thing. But Jesus has the ability. And Jesus has the desire to do something greater still. He says to the man, your sins are forgiven. He gives him the greatest gift. Your sins are forgiven. That right there causes a stir. How can Jesus say that? How dare Jesus say that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Let's say, um, just for the sake of argument that you hurt my daughter, Willow. You never want to do that, but let's say you did. If you hurt Willow, you would not just be hurting my daughter, you would be hurting me too, her dad as well. Like When we sin against someone, we're not just sinning against them, we're also sinning against the ones who love that person. Hurt her, you hurt me. Well, God relates to all of us that way. He relates to all of his creation that way. As our father. Wound others, you wound him. Abuse his creation, you abuse him too. And that is why what Jesus is doing and saying is so outrageous. He's saying to the man on the mat, every sin that you have ever committed... Every harsh word you've ever spoken, every cruel misdeed, it's pardoned. I'm not going to make you pay for that. That's what he's saying. Every sin, every misstep, every misdeed, I'm not going to make you pay for that. It's forgiven. Only God can say that. Only God can say that, say the Pharisees. And Jesus doesn't disagree. He doesn't agree. They're right. Only God can say that. Jesus doesn't dis- you know, disagree with their point. He proves it. He says, to prove that I have that kind of authority, Jesus says to the man, get up. Take up your bed. Go home. He doesn't disagree with their point. He just proves it. Jesus Is the Son of Man. He is the divine human, God incarnate, who has the authority that only God has, the authority to forgive sins. He uses his power to heal, not to harm, to cancel debts, not to make us pay. To help illustrate this point, I want you to imagine this scene with me. I want you to imagine that we are all like children. In a gigantic warehouse filled with priceless works of art. We're all running around the place. We're not thinking about other people. We're not thinking about our surroundings. We're just thinking about ourselves and our fun. Like, we're doing ourselves. Like, you do you. We're doing that, right? You doing you is reckless. We knock stuff over, sometimes on accident, but also sometimes on purpose. Maybe we break stuff because we like the sound of breaking glass, or maybe we break stuff because it makes us feel strong and powerful. It doesn't matter. The stuff that we are breaking is incredibly valuable, and we are breaking a whole lot of it. With every misstep, with every misdeed, our debt accumulates. It adds up. It becomes astronomical. It becomes an impossibly large sum. There's no way that we'll ever be able to pay this back. The owner of the warehouse comes and he shows up and he surveys the wreckage. And then with tears in his eyes, he says, what have you done? Now, normally in a situation like this, if you have, an, if you have a debt that you can't pay, you're immediately thrown into prison. If the debt is infinite, so would be your prison time. That would be called justice. Justice that's what you and I deserve. But what Jesus is saying is that we don't get justice. We get grace. Even though we've broken countless works of art, the owner takes it upon himself and he pays down our debt. We broke it, but he bought it. And he paid for it out of his own bank account. And here's why. He pays it so that we can be free. He pays it so we can be free. No, not free to terrorize the warehouse like we've been doing. He does it so that we can be free to be with him. Free to learn to be in his presence and free to learn to love what he loves and free to sit in that love and to enjoy all that that warehouse contains. This is kind of akin to what Jesus does for us. He uses his power, he uses his authority to cancel our debt so that there will be no more condemnation and no more sin separation so that we can be free to walk with him and enjoy him forever and ever. On May nineteenth, two uh, 2019, Robert F. Smith, a billionaire investor and philanthropist, gave the ultimate graduation gift to the Morehouse College class of 2019. We're going to put a little fuel in your br- We're going to put a little fuel in your bus," Smith said. "This is my class, the class of 2019, and my family is making a grant to eliminate their student loans. Now, when Smith makes this announcement to the 400 or so graduates gathered on the lawn that day, Everybody is in shock and disbelief. My favorite reaction on film, and you should watch this. My favorite reaction on film is that of the man right behind Smith. His mouth drops open, hangs agape. Tears, you can almost see them, right? They start to well up in his eyes. He rises to his feet, and then everybody else does the same. It dawns on everybody what has just been announced. Their college student debt is gone, Like that. They can step into the future debt-free. People start screaming. They start shouting. They start clapping. You can hear people saying, MVP, MVP, MVP. It's awesome. This was a life-altering moment for everyone in the attendance. And not just the people who had their debts forgiven. I think just to witness it, it changed people's lives. Aaron Mitchum, who's a student who graduated in 2019 from Morehouse, he had over $200,000 in college debt. That's crazy. But he had over $200,000 in student loan debt. He tells an interviewer, We all looked around. I said, No way. He's got to be joking. But then tears just started rolling down my eyes, and I realized I'm debt free. I stepped on my chair. I shouted, Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. I'm debt free. I'm debt free. Another 2019 graduate, Peter Wilburn, said, In that moment, we realized this thing we had been dreading for so long was no longer a part of our lives. This thing that we had been dreading so long, debt, was no longer a part of our lives. We could go on from here with a head start. We could do what we were prepared to do. I want you to imagine if somebody did the same thing for you. To imagine that on graduation day, somebody steps forward and says, it's all paid for. Your college debt is gone. How would you feel? What would you say? What would be your reaction? Because my friends... The debt that Jesus has paid is much bigger than that. The gift that he has given you is far, far greater. The debt of all your sin, which is near infinite, the debt that keeps you separated from God and locked out of heaven, he has eliminated it. It's gone, it's paid in full. You do not have to live in debt anymore. You can live like a free man. You can live like a free woman. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, to proclaim good news, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, covering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, of his grace, of his jubilee, This is something that Jesus said last week and he's going to prove it again and again and again and again. He uses his power not to harm, but to heal. To liberate, not to crush. To cancel out debt, not to make us pay. Because he is our maker. He is our savior. He's our redeemer. He's our friend. I want you to look at how the story ends. Verse 25, just hear it. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. They did. And you all have too. You've seen it with the mind's eye. You've heard it with your ears. Jesus is the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. The best thing that could ever happen to you has already happened to you in Jesus Christ. He has swallowed up the debt of your sin forever. So come to him. Stop trying to fly the plane on your own. Let him do that job. Because not only is he good at it, he's got your good at heart. Let's pray.